I should like to call your attention this evening to that uh, incident in the life of Solomon, king of Israel, the account of which we read at the beginning, uh, which is to be found in the first book of Kings, in the third chapter, and taking particularly perhaps the ninth verse. The ninth verse in the third chapter of the first book of Kings. Give therefore thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people, that I may discern between good and bad, for who is able to judge this thy so great a people? But as I say, we really must look at the entire incident. If we are to learn and garner from it, the great and vital and important message and lesson which it has to give us. The picture, as you see, is that of a young man on the threshold of life confronted by a great decision. God appeared to him in this particular manner in the form of a dream. And God put to him that question, Ask what I shall give thee. So that the moment he is spoken to in that way, Solomon finds himself confronted by a choice. And in the last resort, there are only two possible choices before him. He can either choose what he did choose, this wisdom that God alone can give, or else he could have made choice, as God even tells him, of length of days or of great riches or conquest over his enemies. Well, that is the simple story. And the simple picture. Here is a man, I say, starting out in life and confronted by one of two great possibilities. And uh, the whole point of the story is to tell us the choice that Solomon made and God's commendation of that choice. Now I'm calling attention to this this evening because it is, after all, a very perfect representation and portrayal of the position, the situation in which we all find ourselves. Whether we like it or not, life is ultimately just a question of making choice. All along as we go on in this world and as we live, we are taking a choice. There are always various possibilities lying open to us, and every one of us is constantly deciding, choosing. We may not always be conscious of that, but whether we are conscious of it or not, the fact is that we are always doing that. There are possibilities before us, and we inevitably select one, and in so doing, we reject another. And so, if you like our life, can be regarded as a whole series of decisions and of choices which we make thus from hour to hour and from day to day. 
Now the tragedy is that so often we don't realize that. And that we are not aware of the fact that we are taking momentous decisions. The danger is that uh, we just drift along in life without stopping to ponder or to ask ourselves any questions or to consider what it's all about and what we're actually doing. Not realizing, I say, that uh, the whole time we are taking decisions and we act according to our decisions. Another principle that is surely very obvious about life is this. That it is true to say, as I was saying just now in the case of Solomon, that there are only two final alternatives before us. At least that is the great message of the Bible. The Bible says that there are only two ways open to every man, and that is the way of God or the way that is not God's way. Now, that can be subdivided almost endlessly, but that's quite irrelevant, says the Bible. The big decision is whether it is going to be God and his way, or else, well, you could, if you like, the way of the world, the way of the flesh, the way of the devil. And uh, there is the only fundamental division. And we are all confronted by that very decision and by that very choice at this moment. We are always confronted by it. Far as we come into the world and we begin to live and we go on, these two proposals are ever there, they're ever there before us, and they ever come to us. And we are deciding for the one or the other. Well, you, you may say, oh, but I've never even considered this choice of God and his way very well. That means you've chosen the other. There is no other, I say. It all comes down to one or the other of these two big decisions. There is the way that God has indicated for men. It's perfectly plain here in the Bible. He stated it. At the very dawn of history, he's repeated it in the law, he repeated it through the prophets. The Lord Jesus Christ was always preaching it. He says, you've either got to enter in at the straight gate or that wide gate. It's a narrow way or a broad way. You build your house on the rock or else on the sand. It's constantly there, everywhere in his preaching and in all his messages. And it's there in the rest of the New Testament. And we're all, I say, confronted by just that. Are we going to live life according to God's ideas of life, God's wisdom? Or else do we reject that and use our own wisdom, our own understanding and our own ideas about life and living? That's the second obvious principle. And then there is a third a general principle which seems to me to stand out here very clearly. And that is that all our choices are made in the presence of God and under God and under God's judgment. Solomon, as it were, thought that he was just having a dream but there the choice comes and he decides and God is watching and God is listening. And God speaks and God gives his verdict. And God passes his judgment upon it. Now that is 
of the very essence of the whole biblical view of life. That as we pass through this world, we are always under the eye of God. All things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do, says the scripture. We can't evade him, we can't avoid him. Our decisions are not merely our decisions, and no one knows anything about it that isn't so. God is looking upon us the whole time and is observing and recording our every choice, our every rejection, and every one of our decisions. Our whole life is lived as in the presence of God and as under the eye of God. Now then, those, I say, are the general principles. We are all in this self-same situation in which this young man, Solomon, found himself at the commencement of his reign over the children of Israel. So that the obvious question for me to ask at this moment is this, isn't it? What has been our choice? Where do we find ourselves this evening? Which side are we on? Are we for God? Are we seeking God's wisdom, God's way of life and of living? Or have we chosen the other? That which, as I say, is represented by the world and the flesh and the devil. Are we like this young man submitting to God and craving that he will give us this great gift of wisdom? Or do we feel self-sufficient and able to take our decisions and are we following our own ways and our own desires and exercising our own wills? Which is it? Now, what I'm trying to say is this, that it's one or the other. And you can't be in both camps at the same time, for these things are opposites. God himself contrasts them. And we're all of us either on this side of God or else we are not. And I say we've all decided one or the other. If we're ignoring God and his side, it means we've decided to be on the other side. The decision, the choice is there, it's inevitable, it's unavoidable, and the whole time we are taking it and making it under the eye and the scrutiny of God. So that there is no more important question confronting every one of us this evening than just this question that I'm putting to you. What has been our choice? What is our decision? Well, I needn't take time by reminding you and pointing out to you that our last it's very obvious and plain and clear that in the case of the vast majority of people in this land tonight, without going any further, the choice is for the world and the flesh and the devil. There is no interest in God. There is no desire to know God and to follow God. The choice is clearly and patently on the other side, the opposite of that which was taken by Solomon. But I can imagine someone asking me this question. Well, that is so, I agree, and why shouldn't it be so? Why are you suggesting that that is a false choice? Why should we be like Solomon? Why must we, men of the 20th century, agree in saying that Solomon's decision was the right decision? That's the question. Why should we choose wisdom, the wisdom that God alone can give? and reject everything else 
even as Solomon did. Well, now, all I want to do this evening is to hold before you the reasons that are given so plainly and clearly in this ancient record. The analysis really makes itself. And it is, as I say, the analysis that you'll find everywhere else in the Bible. The Bible is always contrasting wisdom and sin. Its final word about the sinner is that he's a fool, that he's a man who's lacking in wisdom. The, on the other hand, the, the wise man, according to our Lord, is the man who builds that house upon the rock. He's the man who's seeking God. He's the man who carries out the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. Wisdom and folly, holiness and sin, these are the opposites. Very well then, let us look at this. And let me put it to you in the form of three perfectly obvious principles. Here is the first. The choice of wisdom is something which is essentially right. Now, before I come to give any particular reasons, I'm making a general statement that Solomon's choice was a choice that was essentially right. The choice of wisdom is always essentially right. Why is that so? How can I substantiate this statement? Well, I'll do so by contrasting it with what he didn't choose. You remember what God said in commending Solomon. He says, Behold, I have done according to thy words. And God said unto him, Because thou hast asked this thing, and hast not asked for thyself long life, neither hast asked riches for thyself, neither hast asked the life of thine enemies, but hast asked for thyself understanding to learn judgment. Behold, I have done according to thy words. Now the contrast, you see, is a contrast which is made by God. Here is a young man confronted by the choice. And he might have chosen to ask God, well, you're giving me the opportunity, and what I would like would be to live a very long life. And I would like, in addition, to have an abundance of riches. And in order that I may enjoy it fully, I would like you to give me the promise that you'll destroy all my enemies so that I shall never have to fight a war, I'll never be distracted, I'll live this long life in the midst of plenty and affluence, I'll have these great riches and nobody will ever take anything from me. I'll end with it all and that's my idea of a wonderful life. Now Solomon didn't choose that. Instead of choosing such a life and such things, he simply asked for wisdom. Now I'm trying to show you that that is a choice which is essentially right. How do I prove that? Well, I prove it like this. That to choose those other things is unintelligent. Indeed, I want to go further. I want to suggest that it is insulting to man's true nature. And yet we know full well, don't we, that that is the choice that is being made by large numbers of people at the present time. They're not interested in God. They say they don't want any of your religion. What do they want? Well, they want to live a long life. And they want to have plenty of money in order that they may have that life and be able to buy their pleasures and buy all the things that they desire to give them pleasures. 
And then they want peace. The world is very interested in peace, isn't it? And the world is interested in peace, obviously because it wants to live this long life in full enjoyment without being disturbed. When a war comes, your pleasures have to be limited and have to be cut. And you're taken away from them and you have to do everything else. That's the real interest of the modern men in peace. He's not so much interested in righteousness and justice. He's interested in having a quiet and a peaceful life in order that he can go on enjoying himself in the way that he likes. Now, I'm suggesting that this is an unintelligent attitude towards life. And that it is insulting to men's true nature. How do you find that, sir, someone? Well, I find it like this. That if you take that choice, it means that you obviously have a certain view of yourself. And your view of yourself is this, that life is just something which calls for an abundance of money and of great riches. And peace, as I say, and avoidance of troubles. And you go on living it for a long time. What for? Well, just to enjoy it, obviously. Nothing else. Now, I am castigating such a view of life as being an unintelligent view of life. And indeed, as being a view of life which is even insulting to human nature. It's a view of life which says that man is nothing but an animal. It's interested in his length of days. Not that because, not in, in order that he may employ those length of days, that length of days, in order to do certain ennobling things, as I'm going to show you in a moment. No, no, but simply that he may go on living. As a dog or a cat may live a long time, or a tree may be hundreds of years old. What an old tree, you say. Well, it's all right, it's very interesting, but it's only a tree if it is two or three hundred years old, and nothing but a tree. Now that, I say, is a view of men that is insulting and insulting to his true nature. It's unintelligent. It's a view of men that doesn't seem to be at all grateful for the gifts that God gave men when he made him at the beginning. It's a view that says man's life is just an existence. And it's an existence in which, uh, by means of money, he can have food and drink and pleasure and do this, that and the other and never anything to disturb it all, and that's men. Now, I say that that's a view of men which regards him as just an animal. That's the sort of life that animals live, isn't it? What do animals live for? They eat, they drink, they give expression to their instincts, their lusts and desires and passions, and they just go on doing it and go on doing it, and they may fight and not fight, and you protect them against enemies and so on. That's purely animal. And if a man says that nothing matters in this world except that his life be prolonged, and that he's always got plenty of money to buy these things that he wants, and uh, that nothing should ever disturb it, I say that it's a view that leaves out of count everything in men that is big and noble and wonderful and glorious. It's got no conception that man is made in the image of God and that he was made to correspond with God and to commune with God 
and to have fellowship with God and to walk before God and in certain senses to be like God. He doesn't allow for them at all. It leaves out of consideration everything that is highest and noblest and most uplifting in mankind. And my dear friends, let me put the case for Christianity at its very lowest this evening. If there were nothing else to commend it, this would be for me almost enough in and of itself. That not to be a Christian, but to live the life of the world which scoffs at Christianity, is, I say, to be unintelligent and to be insulting to human nature. Think of the people, for instance, who are ready to laugh at us for spending an evening like this, and who say, fancy you were reading the Bible, you still read that. They're amazed at us. We are behind the times. We are anachronisms, they say, in this modern world. And they're very sorry for us. Fancy reading that old book, they say. What are they reading? What are they reading? What have they been reading today? News of the world. Is that a sign of intelligence? Is that paying mankind a compliment? Well, there it is, you see. It's insulting to human nature. Interested in what people are doing with their money and how much they're earning and how they spend it and this and that they can get. And they say, oh, I wish I had that. So they'll spend a, a weekend in working out football pools to have this number of thousands, whatever it is. Why? Well, to have riches. Is that intelligent? Is that to pay human nature a compliment? And eating and drinking and all these things. Is that men? I say that in the, hum in the name of human nature, one should make a protest. No, no, this choice of Solomon's was essentially right and good. He had a conception of men which realized that he'd come out of the hands of God and that God had endowed him with certain gifts. That other view doesn't recognize it. It's unintelligent. It's insulting. But let me show you also that at the same time it is utterly and entirely selfish. If Solomon had only chosen length of days and riches and peace and conquest over his enemies, patently and obviously he'd be thinking about no one but himself. And that would have been an entirely selfish view of life. He would have had no thought of helping others and of benefiting others at all. And he would have had no conception of living life to the glory of God and to the praise of God. But you notice the tremendous contrast that Solomon presents to all that. Listen to him as he's confronted with this choice. He starts by thanking God and praising him. Thou hast showed unto thy servant David, my father, great mercy. 
according as he walked before thee. Thou hast kept for him this great kindness, that thou hast given him a son to sit on his throne, as it is this day. Oh, how he's thanking God and praising him. And now, O oh Lord my God, thou hast made thy servant king instead of David my father, and I am but a child. I know not how to go out or how to come in. Thy servant is in the midst of thy people, which thou hast chosen a great people, that cannot be numbered nor counted for multitude. Give therefore thy servant an understanding heart to judge thy people, that I may discern between good and bad, for who is able to judge this thy so great a people? You see his attitude. What I'm asking for, said Solomon, is wisdom. You've made me king over this great people, this great multitude. I want to be of benefit to them. I want to be of service to them. I want to uplift them. I want to enrich their lives. I want to help them. I want to decide their causes and their cases. I want to be a benefactor. I want to leave this people and the world a better place than it was when I came into it. Therefore, give me wisdom. You see, his outlook is not simply selfish and self-centered. He's not simply concerned about himself. Give me length of days that I may go on living. Give me great wealth that I may enjoy myself. Give me peace, conquer my enemies in order that I may be able to enjoy it all. He rejects all that. He's not thinking about himself only. Am I being unfair, I wonder, when I suggest that this is the whole tragedy of the modern world? This terrible selfishness, this self-seeking and self-interest, isn't it the thing that's responsible for many, if not most, of our troubles? Every man out for himself. Constantly we are reading in the newspapers these days, whether it's right or wrong, I don't know. I have my opinion as you have. They say, look at these two political parties. When are they going to start thinking about the country? They're all thinking about themselves, their careers, their promotions. This man wants to be prime minister, that man. Everybody thinking for himself. When are they going to start thinking about the country? We read in the newspapers. It may be right. But isn't that the whole essence of that sinful view? It's always thinking about itself and its own pleasure and its own enjoyment. You know, there is terrible suffering in this world tonight. There are people who are breaking their hearts. And why? It's probably due to the selfishness of somebody. Somebody who doesn't consider anybody's feelings at all except his own or her own. Who doesn't stop to say, if I do that, what's going to happen to so-and-so? What's going to happen to these little children? Don't think of it. I must live my life. I've made a mistake. Very well. Am I to suffer the rest of my life? Ah, oh, no, I'm not. I'm going to change it. Everything's trampled upon. Oh, people can call that sort of thing love and romance. I said it was unintelligent. Isn't it unintelligent? To use such noble terms with respect to such actions which are purely selfish and self-centered. Considering nobody but themselves, give me this that I may enjoy. The That's the question. 
utterly selfish and self-centered. Nothing for others at all. Everything for me. That's the godless life. Read your Bible. You'll find it everywhere. And then when you've read your Bible, read your biographies, read your history, and there you'll find the tragedy of wars and tumults. Where do they come? They come, says James, even of your own lusts that burn within you. You desire to have, and you're always wanting. Selfishness. Self-centeredness. Oh, now this choice of wisdom is always essentially right. Because it's noble. And it isn't self-centered and selfish. It considers others. That's the second point. But take a third one. Solomon's choice of wisdom is essentially right. Because to choose the others is short-sighted also. And how terribly short-sighted. Let's assume for a moment that he had chosen the other things which God commends him for not choosing. Can't you see how short-sighted it is? What if he had chosen length of days? That's what everybody wants, isn't it? Length of days. We are doing so much to extend the length of people's lives at the present time. And there it is. That's what everybody wants. Let's go on living. Let's not think of death. This world, this life, it's the only life and the only length of days in this world. Well, I say about that that it's a very short-sighted view to take when you're making your choice. Because you know however much you may extend man's life in this world. It's bound to come to an end eventually. Modern science is extending life. Ten years, twenty years. What is the average duration of life? It's going up. It's extending. All right, but it's only ten, twenty, or even thirty years. And after that, still death has got to come. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying Christianity doesn't teach that people should covet death. But it does say that the man who's only interested in length of days in this world is a fool because he's short-sighted. He may have his extension, but still the end has got to come. And then, you see, he is left where he was before. He had the choice of choosing anything he likes. Oh, and he says, oh, give me 10 or 20 or 30 or 50 years extra. And he gets them. And then they've gone. And he's got nothing. What a short-sighted view it is. But oh, we all tend to be guilty of this, don't we? You see, at first it looks as if a man who asks for length of days is a man who's taking a long view and is being very far-sighted. But he isn't. He's still bound by time, and eternity must inevitably come. Or look at it, if you like, in the matter of riches. Riches are all right. But a day always and inevitably comes when a man has to leave his riches behind him. Did you read of the men who stumbled, as it were, having had that intuition upon the diamond and became one of the richest men in the world? 
Yes, but uh, he can't take his diamonds with him. It doesn't matter how rich you are, when you die, you've got nothing. You leave your riches behind you in this world. You can't take gold mines, nor diamond mines, nor anything else across the river of death. Such baggage is not permitted. It has to be left on this side. So here's a man who's asked for riches. This is what I want, he says. And at the end, he's doomed to find himself without the thing he wanted. Can't take it with him. What a terribly short-sighted view this other view is. Because if you look at this well done, it seems very wonderful. While I'm here, let me have all the... Yes, but you're not always going to be here. So it's a short-sighted view. And that brings me to that last point. Give me deliverance from my enemies. Give me victory over all my enemies. All right, you may have it. But still there remains one enemy, the last enemy that shall be conquered is death. All the other enemies are but human and they're but temporary. Here is an enemy that remains and abides, the last enemy. So that if you've lived a life of tranquility and peace, you still have to fight that last fight. You still have to confront that enemy that is inexorable and inevitable. Oh, the short-sightedness, the folly of the men of the world that rejects the wisdom of God and chooses these other things. No, no, the choice of wisdom is always essentially right. It's the only intelligent thing apart from anything else as I think I've been able to prove to you. But come, let me take a second principle. What is it that makes a man choose wisdom? Why should we all choose wisdom? Why did Solomon choose wisdom? Here I think we are shown very plainly and clearly the two fundamental things that should always make a man choose the wisdom that God alone can give. Here is the first. Our understanding of the greatness of the task confronting us. Doesn't that stand out here in the case of Solomon? Here he says, you've given me this great job. Thou hast made thy servant king instead of David my father, and I am but a little child. I know not how to go out or to come in, and thy servant is in the midst of thee, thy people, which thou hast chosen a great people that cannot be numbered nor counted for multitude. Give thy servant therefore an understanding heart that I may discern between good and bad, for who is able to judge this thy so great a people? That was the thing that influenced him. He said, here I am. You've given me this momentous task. It's such a tremendous task. Who am I to do this? The greatness of the task. And if you read the lives of all the saints that have ever trod the face of this earth, you will always find that that is the thing that made them seek that wisdom that God alone can give. They suddenly awaken to the greatness of the task confronting them. 
What is the task? Well, here are some elements in the task. I find myself in this world, and I can't just choose length of days because I want to know what is this world. Before I ask to go on living a long number of years in it, I must face this question, what is life? What is men? What am I and what am I doing here? Before I want to go on and on and on living in it, what is it? What am I myself? There I need wisdom. A man who stops to think is a man who inevitably asks that first question. What is life? What's the object? What's the purpose? What am I doing in it? Where am I going? And try as he will, he cannot understand it. He meditates himself. He doesn't arrive at conclusions He consults the philosophers, they have but their theories, and they contradict one another, and he's left asking, what is it? And he doesn't know. Have you ever thought what a tremendous thing it is to be in this world at all? Do you sometimes talk to yourself and ask these questions? What is life? What am I? What is it all about? Before I face the question that I want peace, I want to put an end to war, what am I and why should I desire that? What's the object of the whole meaning of history? There's the task. But look at another element in the task. How can a man live in this world? Here am I, said Solomon, I've got to judge between good and bad. And you and I have got to judge between good and bad. For we find the world appealing to us and attracting us. We read its papers, we look at its advertisements, they come shouting at us off the hoardings, the thing to do in the way of the world, and the crowd says, come with us and join us, this is life. This is wonderful. And then I see this other side and this other view and this other call and here I am wanting to know which is right. How can I judge between good and bad? How can I fight against the world and the flesh and the devil? How can I stop doing the things that drag me down and make me ashamed of myself? How can I say no to evil? How can I deal with that which is within me, which hankers after it and gloats over it and desires it? How can I deal with it? Isn't that a part of the task? Would all the riches of the world help you in that respect? When the world and the flesh and the devil are appealing to you and calling at you and enticing you and drawing you, do you just want to go on living that? And will all the wealth, I say, of the cosmos help you there to look at yourself in the mirror and not feel that you're a fool and a cad and to feel ashamed of yourself? What's the value of wealth there? 
That's a part of the task and the problem. To know how to live in this world in a clean and an upright and a moral and a pure manner. There's the second element, but look at the third. How to die. How to die. For I've got to die. And as it is the essence of wisdom to think how to live, it is equally the essence of wisdom to think how to die. And go out of this world. To what? Ah, oh, says someone, I don't believe there's anything after it. You don't believe it, my friend, but that doesn't mean that there isn't, and that doesn't mean that you prove there isn't. You can just shout your opinion, but it doesn't, is of no value. The question is, do you know that there isn't anything beyond? The Bible says there is. God's wisdom says there is. It is appointed unto men once to die, and after death the judgment, and God, here's your task. To stand before God. How can you do that? What are you going to do with your past record? What are you going to say about your past life? What are you going to say in answer to God's holy law? What are you going to say as God will ask you questions such as these? I gave you your soul. What have you done with it? Is it clean? Is it pure? Are you still in communion with me? Do you know me? How did you spend your life? What, how, what good did you do? What evil did you avoid? There's the test. Solomon saw the greatness of the task. And every man who's ever become a Christian is always a man who's seen the greatness of the task. Believe me, my friend, this life and this world are not just meant for eating and drinking and having a good time and going on doing that forever and forever. No, no. This is but a journey. This is but a pilgrimage. We are all but strangers and pilgrims. We are but journeymen and travelers. And we are living under the eye of God. And we go on to meet him and to stand before him in judgment. That's the first thing. There's the task. But you notice the second thing. Solomon realized his own weakness face to face with the task. Who am I, he says, I am but a child, and I know not how to go out nor to come in. Thy servant is in the midst of this great people. Who am I to discern between good and evil? How can I rule and govern the great task? His own smallness, he says, I'm but a babe. I'm but a weakling, and I haven't the ability. I haven't the strength. I need it. Give it me. I mustn't keep you. But the moment a man realizes the nature and the character of life, oh, how small he feels he is. This tremendous thing that God has put us into, and we travel through it. What is it? What a stupendous thing. We are but babes, every one of us. How ignorant we are. We talk about our science. We talk about our atoms. We can split them and do this and that. But what is life? What a helpless child a man feels who thinks when he's face to face with death. Have you ever felt the mystery of death? The mystery of life? We are but children. 
Don't ever have you ever thought about this great task of living and of morality and chastity and purity. Oh, what children we are, what failures we are. Look at the lives of the saints and look at yourself. Look at the life of Christ and look at yourself. Don't you see your smallness, your weakness, your inadequacy, how helpless we are. There are the demands. Why oh, haven't the strength and the power to ascend the hill of God? I can't get there. And then to cross that river of death and to stand before God in the judgment. That God in his glory. That God who is burning light. That God who is a consuming fire. I I have got to stand before him. I can't avoid it. I can't evade it. I must. There's the task. I shall stand before God. And the moment I realize I've got to do it, I realize I'm nothing. I may have thought I was a good man before I thought of that. But when I think of him and think of that, I know my goodness is rubbish. It's filthy rags. It's dung, it's loss, it's refuse. What's the use of talking about it there? No, no, all I've done and all I've striven brings me nowhere. God sees the heart. He sees the inner man. He sees everything. And when I realize that he will examine me, I fall as nothing before him. I'm but a babe. I'm nothing. I'm hopeless. I'm vile. I'm helpless. That's always the second thing. The man who turns to God and asks for this wisdom is a man who realizes his complete and utter and entire helplessness face to face with the task and the demand that God imposes upon him. And that brings me to my last point, which is just this. What happens to the men who thus with Solomon chooses wisdom? It's always essentially right choice. I've given you the reasons why Solomon took it and why every Christian has ever taken it. Let me just say a word on this. What happens to the man who chooses wisdom? You remember the answer, don't you? God said unto Solomon, Because thou hast asked this thing, and hast not asked for long life, or riches for thyself, or the life of thine enemies, but hast asked for thyself, understanding to discern judgment, behold, I have done according to thy words, lo, I have given thee a wise and an understanding heart. He's given the very thing he asks for. And thank God that is the essence of the gospel this evening. If you have come to see yourself as a hopeless and a helpless and a vile sinner in the sight of God and have turned to him and have asked for the wisdom that you lack and that you need in order to know what to do about it all, he will give it you. 
You go to God and say this. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know, could my tears forever flow, all for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Will you save me? And back comes the answer the moment you've asked. I have saved thee. I have loved thee with an everlasting love. I've sent my son to die for you. I have made him wisdom for you. There's your wisdom. Don't you remember how the Apostle Paul puts it? He says the wise men of the world are rejecting Christianity. But he says we've believed it. Why? Well, because of him are ye in Christ Jesus. Who of God is made unto us what? Wisdom. The thing we need. And what is this wisdom? Righteousness. Sanctification. Redemption. You see what it means? I need wisdom. First of all, how can I stand before God? How can I face him in the judgment? What am I going to do about my past sins? God answers me. Righteousness in Christ. He's borne my sins. He's taken my guilt upon himself. He's taken the punishment. God has blotted out my sins. He has made Christ wisdom in the matter of righteousness. Then my second problem, how to live. How to conquer the world and the flesh and the devil. Christ, wisdom, what? Sanctification. The way to overcome sin. The strength and the power I need. It's in Christ and it comes to me through the Holy Spirit. And finally, death itself. Well, his redemption also. You go to God and ask for this wisdom. And God will tell you that he's already sent his wisdom into the world. And gives you this wisdom freely. Righteousness. Sanctification. And redemption. A knowledge of your sins forgiven. A knowledge that you are a child of God. New life and power. Conquest over the fear of death and the grave and the judgment. And an absolute guarantee that you will be with God in glory. You ask for wisdom, he'll give it to you. But you know he's such a gracious God that he doesn't even stop it that he gives more. Did you notice it? Behold, I have done according to thy words. And... I have given thee a wise and an understanding heart, so that there was none like thee before thee, neither after thee shall any rise like unto thee. And I have also given thee that which thou hast not asked, both riches and honor. He hadn't asked for them, he's given them, so that there shall not be any among the kings like unto thee all thy days. And if thou wilt walk in my ways to keep my statutes and my commandments, then will I lengthen thy days. He didn't ask for length of days. God gives him length of days. He didn't ask for riches. God gave him riches. He didn't ask for conquest over his enemies. God gave him peace. He asked for wisdom. And he had not only the wisdom, but he had these other things thrown into the bargain. 
And you know it is still like that. Did you notice what I read to you at the beginning? The words of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter said to him after the incident of the rich young ruler, Lord, he said, we have left all and have followed thee. What shall be to us? And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that hath left house or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels, but that he shall receive an hundredfold now in this time houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children with persecutions and in the world to come eternal life. That's the glory of this way of salvation. You think before you've believed it that you're giving up a great deal and just having wisdom. The moment you receive the wisdom, you find you're receiving these other things as well. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these other things shall be added unto you. The psalmist said, didn't he, that a day in thy courts is better than a thousand. Do you want length of days? Well, become a Christian. And one day as a Christian is worth a thousand outside. That's the way to lengthen your days. You start multiplying, you see, by a thousand. Riches, are you interested in riches? There is no man who is rich as the Christian is rich. For what is the value of riches? Well, to give me enjoyment. And I testify, I tell you, that there is no enjoyment in life comparable to the enjoyment that the Christian man has. Do you think of this Christian life as a miserable life? If you do, you've never known it. This is a life of enlargement. Enlargement of the mind, enlargement of the heart. Enlargement of the will. It's a big life. It's a thrilling life. I protest this evening. I'm happier than any non-Christian in the world. He doesn't know what happiness is. There's a bitter taste to all his happiness. There's a sorrow. There's a regret about it. There's always something that spoils it. Here is a pure joy. An unmixed happiness. A blessing beyond description. Here are riches. And it is here alone a man knows true peace. You seek this wisdom from God, which is alone to be found in Jesus Christ. And you'll be amazed at what he gives you in addition. He has promised to do so. You become his child. And he counts the very hairs of your head. And he begins to pour his blessings down upon you. Look at this man, Apostle Paul. There he is in prison. He says, I have all things. I abound. He doesn't want anything. He's got everything. Christ, he says, is all and in all. He is happier in a prison than many a monarch upon his throne. I have all. I abound. Brothers and sisters, fathers and mothers, children, houses, possessions. The world is yours, says the New Testament in one of the epistles of Paul. All things are yours. Because as a child of God, you are an heir of God. 
and a joint heir with Christ. Ah, my friend, the question for you to answer is this. What have you chosen? You just want to go on living as you are? You just want riches and the so-called good time? You just want peace and leisure to enjoy it without being disturbed? Is that your view of yourself? Are you just an animal who's sent into this world to eat and to drink and to eat out, eke out such an existence? Is that it? I cannot believe it. See the greatness of life, its momentous character. See yourself moving on to stand before God in the judgment and go to him and ask him to give you a part and a lot in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom he has made to be his wisdom and who will become your wisdom even righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. Amen.